0: From Luke 5, 17 to 26, in the Common English Bible. One day when Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and legal experts were sitting nearby. They had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Now the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. Some men came, bringing a man who was paralyzed lying on a cot. They wanted to carry him in and place him before Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. So they took him up on the roof and lowered him, cot and all, through the roof tiles into the crowded room in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The legal experts and Pharisees began to mutter among themselves, who is this who insults God? Only God can forgive sins. Jesus recognized what they were discussing and responded, why do you fill your minds with these questions? Which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, Stand up and walk. But so that you will know that the human one has authority on the earth to forgive sins, Jesus now spoke to the man who was paralyzed. I say to you, get up, take your cot, go home. Right away, the man stood before them, picked up his cot, and went home, praising God. All the people were beside themselves with wonder, filled with awe. They glorified God, saying, We've seen unimaginable things today. Good morning.
1: My name is Scott. I am the leadership pastor here. Uh, Before we get started, I'd like to pray with you. God, thank you for what you have given us in your scripture, in this text that we will go over today. I ask that you would prepare our hearts, uh, that your, the beauty of your message, your kingdom, and your power would come through, that we would be open to what your spirit may be saying. Amen. It is easy... To miss the big picture sometimes. Um, I remember in my undergrad, uh, I was studying history, and I had a class for those people who were considering going the academic route, going into the academy, um, and doing history for, for all the students who would, eyes would glaze over, because um, that's what most history professors have to deal with for a lot of the classes. But I had in the back of my mind, maybe that's where I would go, so I took this class. Um, and it taught us how to More closely write academically and speak academically. This was important to them. Uh, So there are a few key things that you have to know. Um, There's the basics, and then there's the the complex pieces. And to be honest, they're all really basic. They're just annoying. Um, Like, when to use contractions and when not, meaning you're allowed to use them in speaking. Okay, I should change that. Not allowed to. You must use them in speaking, or you sound like a robot right so too many if you don't if you avoid all contractions when speaking you sound like a robot but you can't use them in writing because you sound like you don't know what you're talking about so in speaking right you sound too academic and robotic but in writing if you use the contractions you sound too foolish and ignorant it was frustrating, right, to, to do this, but to be honest, I knew that some of these things existed already. We'd had to learn them when I was first starting out, and as I'd already been working in ministry, so I, I knew that certain things that you don't do while speaking. So most of the class for that piece was fairly easy, but one of the first things that the teacher said to me when we got, got, when we got going was, hey, look, there's no chance of earning any kind of bonus points in this class, except for one thing. If you can find something I say that is incorrect academically, <laughs> I'll give you bonus points. And now, her per- reason for that was really clear. She was trying to teach us to be very intentional with our language, right? And so she was very intentional with her language. So I spent the whole class, I recorded the lectures. Because I wanted proof afterwards if I caught something, right? I wouldn't have say, I would never say that. I could be like, yeah, you did. Here's the thing. She was good. <laughs> all right? I did not catch a thing, all right, until the contractions conversation. And she says, in your writing, do not use contractions ever. And in your speaking, always use them. She made sure to say always and was making it clear, Right? that in that scenario, always use them. You sound more like people can approach you. Use your big words, but add a contraction if you can. Final presentation, you had to hand in a paper and present it academically. So I did. Hand it in the paper, no contractions. I started my presentation by saying this. You may wonder, Where China is. This is where it's. And I pointed to the map. And she says, whoa, wait, wait, whoa. She stops me, literally stops me, right from the beginning. And says, what what is that? And I said, you said that we have to use contractions where everyone's speaking. And she says, yeah, but that's not what I mean. And I said, it's what it's. (laughs) No joke. Now, we had a good relationship, okay? This wasn't me like being just a rude punk, I mean, maybe, a little bit, but but we did have a good relationship, we were close, and the, group, the class started laughing, she did too, don't worry, I wasn't calling her out in that way, um, and I got bonus points uh, for the class, but the reality is, is I miss, if, if I really did that, I missed the point of her telling me to do what to do, right? If I really went into my presentations, ever doing that, saying something like, it is what it is, by saying, it's what it's, I'd fail miserably at getting the whole point of what was being said. The point was there are ways to communicate well and ways to communicate poorly. Try and follow these ideas, and you'll get, and you'll get somewhere. And if you don't, you'll fail. I think in Jesus' teachings, we can sometimes do the same thing. We can emphasize something so much, we miss the bigger picture in the trajectory. And this story, I think, is actually one of those stories that tries to pull things back on track. And Jesus is trying to make sure you don't make a mistake in the trajectory of the story. Now I want to give you an image of this scene because I don't think, I've heard this obviously, I grew up in church, I've heard this story a lot, and I don't always give it the time it deserves because this story is a bit crazy and we don't talk about the fullness of its crazy. So let's just remind you of the picture Jesus has been healing and teaching and people are definitely coming to him specifically for the miraculous work it even notes that that's one of the things they're looking for is the healing that he's bringing so people are gathered as a crowd around him he has blocked off an area where he's teaching so we're talking about a building with very limited access anyway and the doorway is now full and people are outside looking in and he is he is teaching and healing as people are coming forward And a group of guys have the idea to bring their friend to Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly whose idea it was. Maybe it was their idea, maybe it was the the friend's idea, who's paralyzed, don't really know, but someone had the idea, let's bring this guy to Jesus to get him healed, like everyone else was doing. So they pick him up and drag him over there, hopefully not drag him, that would actually be bad, lift him hopefully over there carry him all the way to where Jesus is at, and they see a crowd of people, and here's what normal people do. Time to get in line, right? Here's what normal people do is time to back up. We'll wait right right here, maybe take a number. Whatever we need to do, we'll watch the crowd. I might scoot in over here. I might point out that my guy's paralyzed, and like your guy has a broken finger, Mm -hmm try to wedge my way in, but they do none of that. At one point, they get together as a group, and I have no clue whose idea it is, but I can picture myself in this scene, and I can think that, first off, this would not have been my idea. A group, this group of guys stands there and thinks, we're never going to get to Jesus, or it might take too long, or whatever the case may be, we want to make sure we do get to Jesus. I got an idea. Let's get on the roof. What is that going to help? is my first thought, right? Like the first thing I is let's get on the roof. What is that going to help? Now there's a roof between us and Jesus. No, no, you don't, you don't get it, Scott. We're going to put a hole in the roof. And this is when I think that the paralyzed guy was not the guy with the idea. I no longer think he was the guy who was like, I got it. Lower me through the roof. Lift me up and drop me down. I'm pretty sure it was the other guys, and they're convincing, and there's one guy who's like, guys, 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 I got it, and everyone else is like, what are you talking about? But this guy is convincing, and he is passionate, and so he was going to be a preacher or something, right? He convinces them, he riles them up, they get moving, they get up on the roof, and you know at least one of them has second thoughts, because they're on a roof, and they start ripping apart the roof, um, here in Luke, uh, the, the language is a little different uh, for a different, few different reasons. One, Luke probably had not been to this region, um, hadn't seen what the roofs are like, um, so he uses tiles, but the roofs really didn't have tiles there. Um, they're more of thatched roofs, but what's really important is, is the type of language that's used because in Mark, they play with the words when they tell this story, at least. In Mark, they say, they get on the roof and then they unroof the roof which is a fantastic way of saying it. Here they say they remove some tiles, and the other, it's like, no, they go for it. They unroof the roof. Pull it all apart and drop him down. And we don't have any bit of the story of what happens in that scenario when everyone stops listening to Jesus and starts looking above them because the sky is falling. But you can imagine that's the focus, right? There is now a hole being dug. There is a preacher up here, and you hear scratch, scratch, scratch. Bang, bang, bang. Is this gonna work? I don't know. Shut up, they can hear you. And suddenly a hole opens up, skylight starts pouring in, and a man is lowered before their eyes. Now, we know that Jesus is going to take action because a hole got put in the roof and a man got lowered in front of him. The situation calls for a response. So Jesus does, he responds. He responds, he goes, he, whatever he was doing stops, he deals with this guy who's right there, everyone around starts talking about it, and I think it tells us some pretty unique, important things about Jesus and ourselves. One, I think that this story, how Jesus responds, tells us that Jesus sees our truest selves. How many conversations were happening in that moment when the man comes down from the ceiling in front of Jesus? What what kinds of conversations are happening? How many, how much noise is in that room, right? Everyone's silent listening to Jesus until the man comes down. And you know people start talking. And yet Jesus looks out, hears or sees beyond to know what the Pharisees happen to be saying. Saying, who is this man? Which by itself is not a scary statement. But who is this man? Knowing what's in their hearts. Knowing the anger and the bitterness that they are building. He pushes beyond that. And he knows why they're asking these questions. He looks into them and he sees beyond their statements. And into their hearts. And this is honestly one of the most attractive parts of this story to me, because I think that sometimes when I think about who I am, what I've done, the way I interact with the world, what I want to be, that sometimes I lie to myself. And it is incredibly helpful for me to remember that when I am talking to Jesus, I am talking to someone who, is, who knows me better than I know me. Who sees beyond my walls and my pretenses, my facades, my masks, beyond my excuses, most importantly, beyond my justifications, and calls to me to see beyond my lies as well. Beyond the lies that we tell ourselves. Jesus sees past all of these things, past all of the noise and the story of people talking, into the hidden broken parts of each of us. And that is where the Pharisees' story and the paralyzed man come right into contact, is that Jesus is not looking at the story as we would. Literally in the moment that there is a crashing and a banging and of, as the man gets lowered through the roof and as Pharisees are talking about the problems with Jesus, Jesus is seeing into their hearts and seeing where they, where they need to be healed and he's looking at the paralyzed man and seeing where he needs to be healed. See when we look at the Pharisees or if we were at least in that crowd looking at the Pharisees we would see the religious leaders who were calling us to devotion in ways that we could never meet but we looked upon them and we would say but if they said so then we're going to keep going and if we looked at that man who was harmed we would probably see who was paralyzed we would probably just see that experience of being paralyzed when we looked at the Pharisees, we wouldn't have seen where in their hearts sin and evil had, 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 had grabbed on. And when we look at the paralyzed man, we probably wouldn't have seen the human beyond the paralysis. Jesus sees into our hearts, but also heals our wounds, both spiritual and physical. There is a series of stories leading up to this that prove um, Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, that's kind of the point of the stories. They're, They're listed as showing that he is the chosen one. He is the Messiah. He is the one you were waiting for. He's following the scriptures. He is proving himself as he is doing these things as he goes along, that he is here to rescue Israel and creation. And that's part of his miraculous power to heal. But this story is different because everyone knows why the man is being lowered. This is the story where they have to tell you Jesus is going to heal this person. But in this story, or the previous stories, they have to tell you Jesus is going to heal this story. In this story, no one needs to tell you that Jesus is going to heal the paralyzed man. Because the experience is such that when you hear someone is paralyzed and being brought before Jesus, what do you think is supposed to happen? that Jesus would heal him, right? It's obvious. They didn't lower him down there because he had a headache. They didn't lower him down there because he was mad at his mother. They weren't in there being like, here's the problem, my paralyzed friend. You're angry all the time. Let's take you to Jesus. They were saying, you're paralyzed and this is going to help. Jesus will heal you. And the people around knew that's why too because they probably knew him. They probably recognized him, right? They, they knew that this is the guy who has to beg and is an outcast in our society. So they know what's supposed to happen, and as Jesus stands in front of him, walks up to him, instead of doing exactly what was expected, exactly what the stories beforehand would tell you he was going to do, exactly what everyone who saw him. Was hoping to witness, he does something else entirely. He witnesses this act of faith and says, Friend, friend, your sins are forgiven. This is a deeper compassion than we would likely see in speaking to someone like this. Because what do you think people thought of when they saw this man with paralysis, who had been begging them for years for survival? They walked past him and they recognized who he was and they saw him as that. Not as a real person who experienced pain and difficulty and sin, but as a man with paralysis. Jesus looked at him just as he had looked at the Pharisees beforehand and looked beyond him, or beyond the, the <laughs> looked beyond to him, beyond what was on the face of it, looked deep into him and said, your sins are forgiven. That place inside that's broken like everyone else, the part of you that's human, the part of you that's just like us, you're not just some other pushed out of society. You need this too, just like everyone else. When Jesus sees our truest selves, recognizing that even in our brokenness, we are capable of not, of course, being broken. We are also capable of doing the breaking, that this man needed freedom from sin just like everyone else. While everyone else saw him for his limitations, Jesus saw something in him. They didn't. They saw his potential. Jesus saw what he was supposed to be and that he wasn't there. And it wasn't because of his paralysis, but because of his sin. And that this thing needed to be drawn out of him. Whatever bitterness he may have held, Jesus saw it and wanted him free from it. Whatever hurt that he had caused others, Jesus saw him beyond that hurt. Whatever trespasses, whatever things he had stolen, whatever his years of cursing God for his circumstances, nothing could compete with how much Jesus loved him. So before healing his body, he offered him the love of God. In the midst of someone saying, the thing you need most is legs to walk, Jesus said, no, the thing you need most is healing from the stuff that pulls you away from God. Because at the end of the day, you may be able to walk, but you can still be lost. At the end of the day, you may be able to walk, but death will still come. I want you to have life. True life. To be honest, uh, this scenario is a strange one for me. Well, in response to faith, Jesus offered this forgiveness. I am always a bit weirded out by healings in the New Testament. Um, I'm a skeptical man by nature. Um, and so I'm, while well, I'm persuaded by the resurrection, that makes the New Testament uh, healings easier to handle. Once you become, once you become persuaded by Someone coming back from the dead, it's easy to be persuaded by the healing of an arm and legs. But my, pers- my, my difficulty with New Testament healings is not that people get healed then or now. It's how many people don't get healed then or now. It's how much pain and suffering is in the world then and now. Jesus said he would feed the hungry, but they're still hungry. Heal the sick, but they're still sick. And free the prisoners, but prisoners remain, then and now. And that was always very difficult for me. To be honest, I, it, this, this was a version of what broke, um, what broke some of my faith years ago and required rebuilding as I, as I had to deconstruct and reconstruct something that I could stand upon. Because oftentimes the church has either handled this in two ways. Ignore it or just act like, well, what Jesus meant was that we're supposed to take care of Jesus' business. That, That what he said he would do actually meant for us to do. That we'll get to it. So Jesus could or couldn't, wouldn't do it. He couldn't or wouldn't. And so we're supposed to do it, right? And that scenario for me made absolutely no sense. Not that we shouldn't take care of these things. But the idea that somehow what Jesus meant was he wouldn't, we would. When I know people, I know people. People are severely limited. We can heal some, but disease still comes. We can feed some, but hunger still comes. We can free some prisoners, but acts of violence remain. We will not. We will not. Free all the prisoners, heal all the sick. We will not. So that understanding was broken for me as well. I found an answer then in the Gospels right here in stories like this. When Jesus confronts the Pharisees, he's confronting them not on his ability to heal, but on his ability to forgive sins. That's what he confronts them on. They're not upset that he could heal. They're upset that he says, I can forgive sins. So when I read this story, I am taken aback by the idea that what Jesus is saying is that there is something much bigger here than the inability to walk. But to prove to you that I'm the person who can fix the deep, deep problems that go beyond our physical limitations, I will do exactly that for you today. Does this show you? And then he heals. To show you that I'm the one who can offer you actual hope beyond the pain, actual hope beyond the immediate healing, I'll take care of this now. Is that enough for you? He looks at the man who he has already freed, and he commands him to get up and walk out. And now they've had physical display of what Jesus had already healed much deeper. What Jesus had made whole. By making him walk again, Jesus healed him temporarily. See, that's what changed for me as I dealt with this issue of the brokenness of our world? I recognized in this story, Jesus first healed him eternally and then said, I will heal you today, but recognize something that everyone has to recognize in their own lives. You will get old and you will get disease, and your legs will not work as you want them to, no matter what you do. You will be healed and then you will still die. And if Jesus could preach to that moment, I think the point of this would say, I can heal you, but if I don't take care of this, one day you die. And what happens? One day, there's a movement away, and where have you chosen? Where has your healing come from? There is a power in the cross and the resurrection that is necessary to understand the healing teachings of Jesus. In those moments when we are questioning, at least me, why on earth would there still be broken people, I have to recognize the statements that are made about the cross and about the resurrection that says this. As Jesus goes to the cross, he takes on the sin of the world. He offers that forgiveness in saying, I will let that sin fall upon me. And in his resurrection, he does the unthinkable. He defeats death. And what he is saying through that resurrection to us as followers of Christ is, no matter what pain or circumstances come your way, no matter what pain or circumstances come your way, I have done the heavy lifting here, and the day you think that death has won, is the day that you will see that victory. And I don't say that as a pie-in-the-sky someday reality for us, because Jesus is saying it must matter now, and you must respond now. And we do respond to the world in that way, but it deeply, deeply matters in saying that the greatest fear of us for us is death and separation from whatever existence is, and Jesus says, "I have that covered. You're good." So from here on out, those moments of pain and suffering, you must recognize that one day the freedom from that will last forever, not a few more years. So I'm not going to heal you from your paralysis for 40 years. I'm going to heal you from your paralysis for eternity. And you need to know the power behind this is not something that you can just pull out of nowhere. It comes from my my being the Messiah, the chosen one of God, for you all. That That on the cross when Jesus takes that sin and in his resurrection when he defeats death, we are given the opportunity to live a different life for the world. One in which we can't just say, healing happens now, we get to say, healing happens forever. That healing happens forever. And that I cannot control when the power of God creates new healing today, but I can witness to what God is going to do forever. I'm more interested in this story personally, in how it has reminded me of the church, um, I've been in ministry for 20 years, and church is a broad subject for me, right? We have Trinity, our church. Am I still active? We have Trinity, our church. We have the church at large. And then we have the church around the world. And then we have the church around the centuries. And when I think of the church around the centuries, right, not just all around the world, but for the entire time it's been here, I am definitely struck with the image of what this story tells. There are three groups of people in this story, in responding to Jesus. We've got the spectators, the friends, and the paralyzed man. And in this story, I see the church often acting as one of these three. And to be honest, this is when, that's why I say this is the church at large, around the, around the state, the country, the world, the, the entire history. So don't take it personally if this feels like I'm stepping on your toes. Oh, but I might be stepping on your toes. but don't take it personally. The image is that we've got spectators and the friends and Jesus or and, and the paralyzed man. We've got the spectators who are listening to Jesus. They are, they are focused on Jesus, looking at him. They are listening and trying to gain something from him. I'm not exactly sure. they don't tell us what everyone's standing there for, but they do tell us that there's enough of them that they are blocking the way of someone who needs to get to Jesus. They do tell us that while they're staring at Jesus, they're also blocking the way from someone who needs to get to Jesus. Someone who needs a path cleared instead of a blockade can't get to Jesus because of the crowd. Then we have the friends. uh, The friends who seem to be holding faith when faith is weak. So the text doesn't say who had enough faith. But I'm pretty sure if it was the friends who were willing to lower this man into the room, that's a lot of faith to pour out that that friend could tap into friends who were holding the faith for him. But it goes beyond that because these are the friends who will carry you when you can't walk, who will ignore the blocked paths to bring you to Jesus, who will stand in the way when everyone says, we're listening over here, and they'll say, get out of the way, this man needs Jesus. And then when no one listens, they will walk upon the roof and tear a hole in it to bring you down to it. Now, I've seen the church be that as well. A place where the kind of creative work is done to the point of recklessness. Where friends will tear a hole in anything to get you to Jesus. Nothing was going to get in the way. To be honest, the best version of the church is when we are recklessly creative, when we are willing to tear the walls down, to tear anything down, because people need to stand with Jesus. And lastly is the paralyzed man. The man that Jesus saved, the man that Jesus continued to save, the man that Jesus will save. To be honest, this is what I try to remind people of often when they, when they struggle with their faith, is that Christianity is a path, not a switch. That one of the most ancient ways of talking about salvation is to say that Christ has saved, that Christ saves, and that Christ will save. And that this is a perpetual process of experience for us. Not an issue that somehow the resurrection is not done, but the experience for us as followers of Jesus. Honestly, COVID, this experience of the last two years, has been a real big struggle for me as a minister. And it's not the techniques, really. It's not the techniques, the the technicalities, the logistics, not even the disagreements and the strained relationships. The difficulty I've had is this transition of faith that many have had to go through. As they've experienced pain and suffering and death, they've spurred reflections on faith. This is common. But for many, it's been a point where they had to realize that they had treated church like a country club, a place to see their friends, a a place as a cultural museum, a place to hold on to artifacts of their cultures, a place as A place as anything but what it was, always meant to be. A witness to Christ's eternal hope. That is a rough transition to go through, to realize that that's what church has been. More than ever, as people are in this place, even now, there are people, even who may be watching online or here in the pews, who are not sure that church has a purpose because they've seen it as only those things. More than ever, we need multiple things to be true of the church. One, we need to admit if we are the crowd getting in the way. We need to admit if we are, or we need to choose to be, the friends where we can. And we need to be honest about where we are still in the position of the paralyzed man. Unable to lift ourselves to Jesus and needing the community to hold us. For that to work, we need the whole church in, committed to lifting each other up and carrying each other to Jesus when we cannot walk. That means not carrying others to our particular cultural values, not carrying others to our particular expectations of each other, not even carrying each other to our community, but carrying each other to Jesus with the full commitment of recognizing we can't fix it. There is a God who can. I say that as someone who has, in the middle of COVID, continues, we're still here somehow, and continues to wonder what the church looks like in 10 years now that this has been upon us. And I'm desperate for an image of the church that says the center is Jesus always and forever, and all of the things that I stand for in my desires for church will wilt away so long as Jesus remains. Because I recognize at this point more than ever that the hope of Jesus must be in this place that says there is eternal possibility for all who choose to enter here. We're going to sing, and before we do, I would like to pray with you about where you are in the midst of this. About whether you feel like even now, looking at the story like this, that you are more like the crowd at the moment. Perhaps you feel like you can be those friends at the moment. Perhaps you feel like you are the paralyzed man at the moment, who needs lifting up. As we pray, I would ask that you do me a favor. Let's close our eyes and move into a state of prayer and hold both your hands to your chest with a real intention asking the Spirit of God to move and show you who you are in this moment and what you need. Because you, you need to know that Jesus is here for you, ready to tear down the lies you've told about yourself and ready to tear down the walls you've put up and offer you true healing and hope. God, we come before you as people of the resurrection, people who commit ourselves to recognizing that there is more to this world then our pain would have us believe. We ask that you would show us our true selves and seek out that in others. We trust that your love can be just as powerful and more powerful and beyond anything we could imagine.